invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study in Romans. We have one more study in Romans and then we're going to we're going to take a break from Romans and uh, we'll be looking at uh, I'm toying around with a couple of things. I haven't made up my mind, but uh, one of the things I'm thinking about, it just came to me yesterday. I think I shared it with Alex is uh, 40 minutes of Jesus, you know, 40 minutes of Jesus, part one and 40 minutes of Jesus, part two. Um, there's an explanation for that. I'll spare you those details for now. But uh, um, we're going to begin reading this morning. I, I think that uh, for the sake of context, we'll, we'll just start at verse 18 and read through the conclusion of the chapter. Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 18. I think everyone has found their place. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we do call on you this morning, Father. We call on you for your grace. We call on you, Father, that you would fill our hearts with your steadfast love as we plow through a difficult text. We ask, Father, that you would do more than just instruct us, but, Father, you would press whatever truths need to be pressed upon our hearts at this time, that you would press those truths upon our hearts. But, Father, um, if, you must, um, uh, if, if you must lacerate our hearts, Father, we know that, O oh Lord, you will heal them. Father, if you must cut as a divine surgeon, we know, Father, that you will stitch the place up, and that you will give healing. And Father, uh, we recognize that the outcome will far surpass uh, uh, the beginning. So Father, to you we look in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 
Speaking to the Ephesian elders, the Apostle Paul said these words, which are recorded in Acts 20 and verse 27. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And here Paul sets forth an example that every pastor is to follow, uh, namely that we're called to share the whole counsel of God. Uh, That's the good news. uh, And that also includes the bad news. And a verse that I think every pastor should have nearby, uh, especially uh, in the place where sermons are prepared, is First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, which reads, Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I'll read that to you again. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I think you can tell from this introduction, I'm getting you ready for a sore message. Uh, This is no fun for me either. Um, um, You just read the text. Um, It's a difficult text, isn't it? Uh, Yes, there's a sore message coming. One of the reasons why I like to preach through the books is that I don't determine the timing of these things. You know, um, we start with chapter 1 and verse 1. I made the announcement we're going to be studying Romans back in the spring, and there was so much excitement about it. Here we are, aren't we? Uh, Plowing through chapter 1. We start with chapter 1 and verse 1. We go to the end, and this actually keeps the preacher from gravitating towards his favorite doctrines, from gravitating towards his favorite passages. Uh, Quite frankly, I, I really don't know what I would do if I was trying to determine, okay, what topics should we be studying next? What should we be doing next? What, what should we be doing next? And, and I'm not saying that there isn't an element of that in pastoral ministry. There is. But I'm really thankful that when we preach through the books, there's a balance that we experience. It's a divinely inspired balance. What do I mean by that? Well, what are we studying next? Well, what we're studying next is what comes next. Well, who determined what's coming next? The Holy Spirit. And I'm always absolutely amazed. Sometimes when some of you, believe it or not, when you come to me and say, man, I'm wrestling with this and I'm wrestling with that. And I have just read ahead. And I think to myself, oh my goodness, Lord, you're amazing. Because what one of you or two of you is wrestling with is just right down the river, just a little ways. And it's amazing how God works in a congregation that way. I'm not saying that topical uh, topical preaching is not important. It is important. We did our study in the covenants, didn't we? Uh, For for several weeks. And this uh, idea of 40 minutes of Jesus would be a topical message. There's a place for that. I'm not saying there isn't. But generally speaking, we study through the books, don't we? We start at the beginning. We work our way through the end. Now, in our current political landscape, if there's any text in Scripture that a preacher is tempted to skip over, I can't think of many that would be more tempting than Romans 1, 18 to 32. Um, I, I can't think of too many. Uh, I'm going to warn you that the following message is offensive to human pride. It is offensive to human pride. But I also encourage you, it is necessary for salvation. 
It's offensive to human pride, but it's necessary for salvation. What do we need saved from? Like I said last week, if you, if you, if you ask people in our culture today, are you saved? Don't be surprised if they respond by saying, saved from what? And it's because there's been this pattern of skipping the bad news and going right to the good news for so long that the bad news is either forgotten or it's no longer even believed anymore. People just don't, they just don't believe it. Now, um, what we're going to look at this morning is going to answer the question, what we need saved from. And my approach this morning is going to be the same as last week. I would like to work inductively through the text, meaning we're just going to kind of go through and make discoveries together as we go along. Now, I want to pick up where we left off last time, but we'll review for the benefit of those who weren't with us last week. Uh, If you look with me to verse 21, this is where we left off last week. And let me overlap just a little bit so we can back up for the benefit of those who didn't hear last week's message. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And this was really the basic indictment that we considered last time. Verse 19, if you back up there, tells us that everyone knows God exists because what can be known about God is plain, isn't it? Because God has shown it. And you may recall my my uh, illustration, a story, you know, I was walking through that park with those two fellows and I can see them like I can see them like it was yesterday. I hadn't thought about this story in a long time. So I was preparing for last week's last week's message. And I thought we were walking through the woods and uh, these guys were just genuinely trying to figure out is does God exist? They're hitting me with all these questions. Does God exist? And, and after a while, I took my wristwatch off. You remember the story? I took my wristwatch off. Some of you didn't hear the stories. I look around. I took my wristwatch off and I set it in the limb of a tree. And then I looked at these two characters and oh my goodness, if you knew these characters. Yes, Alex. That, yes. If you knew these characters. <laughs> I set my wristwatch in the limb of a tree. And I said, okay, fellas, suppose you're walking through this park and you happen to notice this wristwatch laying in the limb of a tree. What would you conclude from that? And they're looking at me like, and mind you, these two called me a philosopher. They said, Rick's some kind of philosopher. You know, he talks about stuff that's strange, you know. Uh, They're looking at me like, okay, what is this all about? I said, no, come on. I kept pressing them. Tell me, if you come, if you come, let's imagine you come through the woods here and there you saw this watch laying in the limb of a tree. What would you conclude? And they said, well, I Someone took their watch off and laid it in the tree. I said, why would you come to that conclusion? Well, it didn't get there by itself. Well, come on. I mean, given all of the springs and gears and wheels and quartz and everything that's throughout this whole world, you don't suppose that given enough time, they could have all gotten together. They could have gotten synchronized together and got set in time and began clicking and ticking and uh, keeping time right here in the limb of the tree. They were looking at me like I had truly lost my mind. But that is what is suggested every day, isn't it? A watch is such a crude instrument compared to a protein cell, right? Protein cell, pretty complex. Human conscience, pretty complex. We all know that the the truth that we looked at last week is the fact that we all know, everyone knows, that God exists. But we suppress that truth. We push that truth away. We're, 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 we're 
pushing back against this truth. We're acting and living as if God doesn't exist. We're refusing to honor him, refusing to live for him, refusing to glorify him, refusing to submit to him. And this really is to act like children who act as if they have no father while they live completely wholesale dependent upon their father honoring everything that he gives them yet acting exists as, as if he doesn't exist at all to the contrary when they do act as if he exists they offend him now if i introduced you to somebody like that and i said oh you know this guy over here yeah uh, you know he's got he's sort of okay but he's kind of like this you know he's they treat their father terrible they kind of act like he they just act like he doesn't exist and when they do talk about him it's not pretty but he takes such good care of them he gives them everything they need they'd be lost they'd be they wouldn't even be able to exist without him if i explained somebody like that to you you'd think this is a real rascal you got here yet we have on one side no taste for this kind of thing but yet this is the clear indictment against us, isn't it? As a human race, this is how we act. Back to verse 21. Fallen humanity became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul fleshes this out in verse 23 and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Uh, a phrase we should pause and look at is this phrase glory of the immortal God if we take the qualifier out of there and just simply say glory of God the glory of God we're to understand that that Paul is speaking of the majesty of God speaking of the supremacy of God the splendor of God the goodness of God you could go down the list but I think there's something else here that's in view that we should be thinking of that I think helps open this passage up a little bit is be thinking of the fact that we were created to reflect the glory of God. Uh, I'm now kind of pointing towards the uh, language of Genesis 1 and verse 26, uh, which teaches us that we've been created in the image of God. Uh, we're meant to reflect God. If you set a mirror up and you put an object before it, it reflects the image of the object, correct? Um, and I think... This brings us to the heart of what Paul's on about in these verses. Uh, we are created to worship God in everything we do. All of life is to be lived for the glory of God. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, isn't it? It's a famous verse. You've heard it many times. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. Now, the indictment here is we have cast God out so that when we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of self. And that's the essence of verse 18 to 32. I mean, when we attempted to cast God out, we had to substitute him with something because we can't stop worshiping. You can't stop. I can't stop. We're all going to worship something. We can't stop you're worshiping something right now. I mean, you, when you get up in the morning, you start and you do this all day long until you, until you go to bed. 
we, we can't stop. The ancients, they crafted gods out of wood, stone, and precious metals. If, if you look at verse 23, this is what Paul's talking about by images resembling mortal man. You see that? Birds, animals, reptiles. We can think of ancient Israel after they crossed the Red Sea. They go out into the desert. Moses is caught up on the mountain. And while the, while, while the leadership is gone, what's going on in the camp? They're pulling off all their jewelry, all the gold they could muster up. They're putting it all together. They're melting it down. And, and uh, what comes out of the fire? A golden calf. And they're bowing down before it and they're worshiping it. Now, um, the idols of modern men, are, they look different, but they're in essence the same. Probably not many of us have a golden calf laying around. But uh, self is a big idol. Money is a big idol. Um, fame, what people think of you. Power. Um, <coughs> sports, sex, you know the list. I don't have to spend much time on that. And in doing this, we, we really pay a dear cost. I mean, the, the cost that we pay here is that we cease to reflect God's glory. Because the object that's before the mirror isn't God. That's why the psalmist can say, listen, uh, you know all these characters that are, that are uh, uh, worshiping these idols? They become just like them. Psalm 115, for example. Those who bow down to these things become just like them. You know, if you worship a football team, you're going to look a lot like a football. It's not real pretty. No, it isn't. It isn't real pretty. But if that's the object that's in front of the mirror, what's the mirror going to reflect? It's real simple. We, we cease to reflect God's glory and God is hardly glorified by the way fallen humanity acts and talks and thinks every moment of every day. I mean, this whole thing's come tumbling down and there's a word for all this. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is just simply this. You can think of idolatry as worshiping something other than God. Something other than God. And this has brought God's judgment upon humanity. Now, at this point, I want to enter in some of last week's discussion because I want to build on it. Um, last week, we talked about the wrath of God. If you look back to me to verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we said that the wrath of God was his angry judgment against human sin. We also talked about the fact that, you know, you're probably hardly ever going to hear about the wrath of God. It's rarely ever spoken of and uh, don't think that we sh because of that we should just run to Facebook this afternoon and just be peppering it with the wrath of God either um, let us refrain from that okay but let's not exclude it completely out of our gospel presentations you follow me I don't want to because yeah, I could we could run afoul with this um, but it needs to become part of our gospel presentation uh, you may recall that last week I said there's a historical, there's a future, and there's a present manifestation okay, of the wrath of God. Let me explain it, because I don't think I, I didn't explain that much last week, did I? I don't think. We could think of a historical manifestation of God's wrath and judgment. That would be to think uh, Noah's flood, or to think of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Or to think of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Or later, to think through the history books of Israel. Uh, when they apostatized uh, uh, from God, they began to lose the wars, didn't they? 
And eventually, because of their apostasy, they're carried up, the northern tribes are carried off by Assyria. And later the southern tribes carried off by Babylon, right? And they're taken into exile. And then in the New Testament, uh, we, we have uh, Jesus in his Olivet Discourse talking about uh, really alluding towards the fall of the temple, the Jerusalem temple. It takes place in A.D. 70. Uh, these would be examples of historical judgment where we, we have the word of God uh, that is informing us that this indeed was the, 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 the wrath of God, the judgment of God that took place in history. And then we could think of it in a future tense if we think of the prophets in the Old Testament, especially as they talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. They everywhere talk about the day of the Lord. That's a multifaceted term. Uh, but one of the facets of that term is this time of future judgment. And the New Testament speaks of it as well, does it not? Jesus speaks of it. Uh, the book of Revelation is a really graphic, in many ways, a graphic image of it, isn't it? So we have a uh, past manifestation of God's wrath and judgment. We have a future manifestation of God's wrath and judgment. And here in verses 23 to 28, we learn of a present manifestation of God's wrath that involves namely his act of this little phrase here, giving them up, giving them up. Now, before I flesh out this phrase, I want to show you an outline that's in this text. There's a built-in outline here. Some of you may be aware of it, but I want to bring everybody up to speed. There's a natural outline in this text that, that centers on the word exchanged and the phrase God gave them up. If you look in verse 23, Fallen humanity, uh, verse 23, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, We have this word exchanged. Then verse 24, therefore God gave them up. See that? And the lust of their hearts to impurity. That'd be the first one. In verse 25, fallen humanity, there's the word exchanged again. Exchange the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Okay. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then later in verse 26, fallen humanity exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. See the word exchanged again. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. So you see there's a, there's a built-in outline here. And structurally speaking, we have a threefold pattern of humanity exchanging and God giving up, right? Has anybody been aware of that? Is that new to some of you? Um, so let me, let me summarize what Paul's saying. He's saying in the first one, verses 23 and 24, they exchanged the glory of God for creation. Therefore, God gave them up to impurity. And then in verses 25 and 26, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verses 26 to 28, they exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations. God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, I want to look at these three parts briefly. Uh, you know, as we saw last week, clearly the universe was made by a creator. And nothing comes into existence by itself, right? Um, you don't pay the electric bill, what happens? The lights will go out. I mean, try it sometime. It'll go out. It'll go out. Uh, nothing happens by itself. 
In other words, we all know that God made us and God has made everything. And then rather than basking in the glory of this, we've chose to glory in other things. Celebrities, sports, money, sex, children, the list is endless. We have chosen to exchange the glory of God, if you will, uh, for the glory of self. And in our fallenness, we want nothing to do with God. We're incredibly consumed with ourselves, etc., etc., etc. It's not God's will that we want done. It's ours. Therefore, God has given us up. He has given us up. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be given up? Let's spend a few minutes talking about that phrase. I can't remember where I read this, and I need to Google it, uh, because this is the second, the second or third time I think I've told you, and I can't remember where I've read this, but uh, somebody somewhere along the line said that theological truths are a lot like coins. You know, they have two sides. Um, theological truths often have two sides. Uh, sometimes it's a divine side and a human side. And in this case, this idea of giving up, there's two sides here. There's a human side and there's a divine side. Let me flesh that out. For example, in Ephesians four seventeen to 19, the Apostle Paul concerning fallen humanity writes these words, quote, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. End of quote. Now, let me reread verse 19 for you. Paul says they have become callous and have given themselves up. They have given themselves up. This is the human side of what we may call the cycle of sin. This is the human side of the cycle of sin. Uh, For sake of illustration, let me flesh this out for you. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's a flaw in this illustration. I'm going to point that out to you right now, and I'll explain what the flaw is in a moment. But let's suppose a child who was brought up to be honest is tempted to cheat on a test in school. She succumbs to this temptation, and she gets away with it. Okay, she wants to please her parents. She wants to bring a good test score home. She knows she's probably not going to be able to do it. She cheats. She gets the good test score. She takes it home. Everything is fine. It's going to be easier for her to cheat on the next test. And in fact, if she cheats on a couple more, her heart will harden to the morality of it. It will no longer be an issue of whether it is right or it is wrong. It'll be strictly an issue of whether getting, she's getting caught or not. It's going to be all about not getting caught. She has given herself up to be a cheat. Does that make sense? Now, the flaw in this illustration is it may suggest to some that she was okay prior to cheating on the first test. No. Um, No. Um, She has given herself up in countless areas of her life. We all have. I mean, her mama, if she has any brothers at home, her mama would tell you she's given herself up to fighting with them long ago. It's just the nature of it all, isn't it? David, King David put it this way, he said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And this is the sad reality of the human condition. And it is precisely this condition that we need saved from. If someone asks you, if you ask somebody in our culture today, are you saved? And they say, saved from what? This is what we need saved from. 
This is the human side. It's the human side of all of this. We have given ourselves up uh, to this sin. And once we start doing it, once we start going down that road, we don't care about the morality of it anymore. We just care about whether we're getting caught or whether it's affecting us in an adverse way. That's all we care about it after we're given up. Now in Romans 1, Paul is flipping the coin over. And what he is doing here is he's saying, listen, there's a divine side to all of this too that you need to understand. There's a divine side to this. If we devote ourselves to following sin, there comes a point when God will say, okay, is this the way you want it? Is this how you want it? It's all yours. Go ahead and have it. You just have it. And he gives us up. And one of the clearest signs that we've been given up is when we can do these things without any breach of conscience. That's one of the clearest signs that we've been given up. Like the girl in my illustration, when our only concern is if we get caught, we're in a bad, bad situation. Now, before we look anywhere else, let's look in our own hearts for evidence of this. Let's look in our own hearts for evidence of this. Jonathan Edwards had a resolvement. One of his resolvements was before looking to the sin of anyone else, let me first look to my own sin. That's a great resolvement for us to have. But having said that, when we look around at our culture and we see, uh, we see this, present, uh, this present judgment of God everywhere, we see it everywhere, and it should break our hearts. You know, if a preacher can stand here and preach the things that I'm standing here preaching, and if you can do it like gleefully, and you can do it almost in a sense like you're kind of enjoying it a little bit, and you're doing it with this heavy, heavy hand, that should be the last sermon that you ever preach in your life. This should be breaking our hearts. We've turned away from God. And verse 24, He has given us up to impurity. We have turned away from God. He has given us up to impurity. How do we know this? Find someone in our culture. Find anyone. Find someone in our culture that's concerned with sexual purity today. Find someone in our culture that's concerned with sexual purity. Suggest that sex should only take place between a married man and woman in our culture, and our culture will become furious with you. And that's a clear sign. It's clear evidence that we've been given up. Given up in the lusts of their hearts. Secondly, we've exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie, verse 25. What is the lie? Verse 25 answers saying we've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Okay, we were all created, as I've said, we we're all created to worship constantly. If we're not worshiping Almighty God through Christ, then that means we're worshiping some aspect of creation because these are the only two choices we have, isn't it? There's only two choices, God through Christ or creation. Okay, well, when we chose to worship creation, we bought into this lie. This lie goes this, like this. It's in your best interest to worship this stuff, you know, not the creator. That's the lie we bought into. And therefore, God has given us up. I mean, as a culture, we don't even blush about this. We don't even blush. If you notice that, we're losing the ability to blush. This is clear evidence that we've been given up. 
How do I know that? How can I say that? Think about the prophecy of Jeremiah, if you're familiar with it. God gave this indictment through the prophet Jeremiah as Jeremiah was preaching to the people of God, to the, to the covenant people of God. In Jeremiah 6 and verse 15, God says through Jeremiah, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Were they ashamed? Answer, no, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. He says it once in Jeremiah 6 and a couple chapters later in Jeremiah 8, he repeats it word for word. How do we know we've been given up? We've lost the ability to blush. This is terrible news. And I wish we could stop. We have just a little bit more to do here. Verses 26 to 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Idolatry has consequences. I hear people say all the time, what difference does it make if we're over here in the corner doing it and we're not bothering anybody else? It doesn't work that way. We need to think of idolatry as like dropping, taking poison and putting it in an eyedropper and going up to a bowl of stew and just letting some drops go into the bowl of stew. Hey, I did it over there. Uh, don't dip from the far corner, from the from the far side of the bowl. That's where the poison went in. It's all good over here. Would, would anybody like some? It's not how it works. There's a, there's a spiritual principle that runs all through the Scriptures. We especially see it in the wilderness wanderings where when there's sin in the camp, what happens? That's what a lot of those stories are about, you know. When there's sin in the camp, it affects the whole camp, doesn't it? It affects the whole camp. Idolatry has its consequences. Um, there's, there's no way around it. Um, we cannot commit... Uh, idolatry over in a corner and think it'll have no effect on anyone else. Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What is the reason for this? Back to verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is given as the root cause of these dishonorable passions. Some of you are interested in biblical counseling. This is an important issue. The connection, the linkage between idolatry and dishonorable passions. I'm not going to say this is entirely all of it. It's not, it's not at all. There's more going on than this. It's a little more complex than this, but this is part of it. It's not the whole puzzle, but quite a few pieces of the puzzle are found right here. This linkage between idolatry and dishonorable passions. If we're wrestling with dishonorable passions, we should have our eye open wide for idolatry in our hearts. It's, pro, it's, it's, it's there. Again, I'm not going to say it's all of it. We got a little more to do than that. But if you find dishonorable passions, you're going to find idolatry as well. Uh, clear connection here. You see why we can't skip this stuff? And we wonder why there's so much going on in the church and why the church looks so much like the world. We're skipping this stuff. We can't skip this stuff. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the third and final consequence that Paul mentions for turning to idols. A debased mind. A debased mind. And then Paul devotes 
verses 29 to 31 to what was called a vice list. A vice list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're full of gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is a snapshot, friends, of the fallen human heart. You want to know how bad it is? This is it. It's a snapshot of the fallen human heart. I've had a question burning at my heart about this for a long, long time, ever since I started studying these verses. And the question is this. I mean, once people are given up, are they given up permanently? Have you ever thought about that? What do we do? How do we answer that? I've wrestled with that. A famous uh, preacher in church history, Chrysostom, he believed that God gave humanity up to cause them to fall so low that they would cry out in repentance and find salvation. Oh, thank goodness that many do. And some of us have come to faith in adulthood when we are at a very low point in our lives, haven't we? <clears throat> thank goodness for that. That God would love us enough to give us up uh, for that purpose. But all of that having been said, here is a chilling reality. Many do not repent. They don't. And here's the conclusion that I've come to. It's not just mine. It's, it's a widely held conclusion. That there's this line in the sand, you know. No pastor knows where it is. No minister knows where it is. No biblical counselor knows where it is. As sinners, we don't know where it is. But there's a line in the sand that is known only to God. And... If we cross that line with our stubborn rejection of the truth, there then is no point of return. Think of Pharaoh in the Old Testament and Exodus. God says to Moses, you go tell him to let my people go. God goes and says, Pharaoh... Let the Israelite, let the Hebrew people go. And we're told Pharaoh hardens his heart. And this goes back and forth, this cycle. And we're told Pharaoh hardens his heart. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then finally, at one point in the narrative, it reads, and God hardened his heart. He played around and he crossed the line. People are doing that every day. That's why the psalmist says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. This is terrible news. It's terrible news. I'm not sweetening it up because it's meant to be terrible news. It has to be terrible news. In fact, I'm not able to preach how terrible it is anymore. And I'm able to preach how good the good news is. I can't do either. I'm doing the best I can here. It's meant to teach each one of us how much we need Jesus. And the, the cavalierness that, 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 that we express all the time concerning Jesus goes to show that, 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 that there's quite a level of unbelief about all this in our hearts yet. It, God must purge it. 
I mean, we need Jesus. Do you realize how much we need Jesus? Look deeply into the abyss of what I've just been talking about, and then we get an idea how much we need Jesus. That's why these kinds of messages, I hate preaching them, but these kinds of messages are so necessary. We look down into the the abyss of the fallen human heart, and there we discover how much we need Jesus. Left to ourselves, we're given up in sin. You guys ready for some good news? Thought you'd never get there, Rick. God has not left us to ourselves. He hasn't. He's given us His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the most shocking news that could ever be shared. How'd God save How'd God save us? The answer is in Romans 8 and verse 32, if you'd find that. Look back to that. How did God... How did God save us? Find Romans 8 and verse 32. Has everybody found it? He who did not spare his own son, but what? He gave him up. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a phrase we've been studying in Romans 1? the same word the same Greek word used in Romans 1 18 through 32 God gave them up you guys want to sin go ahead it's all yours go ahead do it he gave them up how does God save us They wanted to sin. All right, here's my son. I'll give him up. Jesus was given up to the wrath of God on the cross. So you see, as we stare into the abyss of the fallen human heart, We are also at the same time staring into the cool waters of grace as we consider what Jesus endured to save us. He loved you so much that he allowed himself to be given up for those sins. You see how the good news suddenly starts to make sense? You feel the joy filling your hearts. We're all a bunch of rascals. We're like that guy. You know that guy over there? He doesn't want anything to do with his father. But boy, I tell you what, if his father quit paying all his bills for him, he wouldn't get nowhere. It's disgusting to watch. That's us. But boy, what a father he has. What a father we have. What a father we have. 
Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. It's unthinkable that God would give His Son up for us. But here's the truth and proclaim it from the housetops. Jesus said, whoever comes to Me, whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. If you believe that truth, you're running straight to Jesus. But if you're toying with that truth, if you're playing games with that truth, you're saying, well, maybe sort of okay, you don't believe it. And God's wrath is upon you. You don't believe it if you haven't run to Him. You don't believe it. And that verse that I shared with you last week from John chapter 3, verse 36, applies to you if you're toying with this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, that's present tense. That's the very thing that Paul's talking about in Romans 1.18, isn't it? For the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. But for those of you who have been, if you're toying with this, don't toy with it any longer. Don't toy with it any longer. Don't toy with it any longer. I beg you, don't toy with it. But for those of us who have embraced Christ, may this sore message remind us of the incredible grace we've received. Jesus allowed himself to be given up in order to save us. Is that grace filling your heart? Wonderful grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've plowed through some really, really terrible news. But as we've gone through this valley, Father, you've brought us to a, a wonderful, wonderful point on a very high rock where we, where we see, oh, Father, you truly are our deliverer. You're our redeemer. You're our friend. You're the lover of our souls. You would love us so much that you would allow yourself to be given for the wrath that we deserve. Oh, Father, how do we respond to this? We respond by giving you our hearts, Father. We give them to you afresh this morning, Father. They are all yours. Give us the grace to follow you and submit to you and and to live for you, to live for you, oh, Father. That we would live for you, submit to you, honor you, glorify you to the best that that we're able. And we look forward to increased grace and we look forward to increased provision and empowerment to follow you closer and closer. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.